You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. My name's Laura Davidson, and my husband and I serve as gospel community leaders here at Northway. And today we will be reading from Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Genesis 29, verses 1 through 12. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Northway. I need to let you know starting out that I'm not Tim Keller. (laughs) There were people, evidently, people think I look like him and people were texting out that Tim's back. And at Northway, that's not the case. And you'll see that in a minute as I go through my sermon. My name is Burton French, uh, one of the elders here. And as uh, Shay was sharing some open preaching dates with, um, with some of the lay elders uh, to, to preach for you, uh, I looked at this date and I thought it was a really good one to choose because uh, number one, it's July 4th weekend and, and this is more laid back. And I thought, hey, it's not gonna be as uh, stressful as a normal And so thank you for that. But also, I couldn't resist teaching on this particular passage in Genesis 29 about Jacob and Laban and Rachel and Leah. What a fascinating story. So I look forward to diving into that with you in in just a little bit. Uh, But first, to share a little bit of a personal story. Uh, When we have three sons, Joan is my wife, and we have three sons in our family. They're all grown now. But when they were growing up, their mom was the one who kept us healthy and fed well, nutritious. She kept us orderly in our family, bedtimes and all that. And when she would leave town, it wasn't very often, maybe a women's retreat or to see a friend somewhere. When she would leave town, we had some legendary French male gatherings and bonding times and what would usually happen is that 
The first thing was Frito pie, okay? You know what I'm talking about? And big bag of Fritos, chili, and not just any chili. Hormel is for sissies. It's got to be Wolf brand chili. The sodium, cholesterol, and flavor. That's all it is, just three ingredients. And, and then we'd chop up onions and uh, cheese, you know, shred cheese and put on there and maybe some chopped jalapenos. And then, you know, it's a little spicy, so you've got to have some ice cream after to offset that. So banana splits we would do and put the fudge and the caramel and the whipped cream and the cherry, you know, that we never, never did when, when Joan was around. <laughs> so, but they loved it. And then after that, we're talking Star Trek you know, marathon and no regular bedtime. So it was great and we loved it. And that's what would happen when mom would leave town. And so the segue here is that when Shay asked me to preach, I'm thinking, okay, Shay's out of town. The pastors (laughs) are gone and it's me and my brothers and sisters at Northway. We're going to have a good time. And uh, maybe a Frito pie comes out. And then, unfortunately, about a week ago, I found out Shay is actually leaving tomorrow. So I said I had to quickly scale back, rearrange what I had planned, and we're just going to dive into God's Word, which is enough for us, right? Better than Frito pie. So let's do that. When, when I think about Bible reading, think about it in two ways. And they overlap, but you know, one is devotional reading. So important for our spiritual lives. That's where we may spend five minutes or 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day getting into God's word because it grounds us. It centers our mind around that. That's what we do as elders. When we're meeting, every elder meeting starts out with five minutes of one elder sharing from the word of God. It could be anything. It's not Bible study. It's grounding ourselves devotionally in the word of God. And it's combined with prayer It's like our breath. It's like breathing. Whereas Bible study is the other kind where you dive into God's word deeper to draw meaning and understanding from it. And I equate that to like eating. You do Bible study for growth and for strength and spiritual growth. So that's the, that's kind of the two different kinds. And when we preach here, we're really drawing off of study. We talk about the inductive type of Bible study where you open the word and you read the passage and you observe. The first phase is observation. And then the second is try to draw, once you've observed and you've figured out who the characters and the places and the plot and what's going on, then the second phase is to analyze and interpret. That's to try to draw meaning from the scripture. And so you look at Pass other passages, you look at other resources to try to understand what the Lord is saying here. And then the third phase is application. And that's where you take what's there and what you've seen that it means and, and you apply. What did I learn about God? What did I learn about the world around me that I live in and encounter every day? And what do I learn about myself? So that's how that inductive thing works. And it works so naturally that it, week by week, as our pastors get up here and preach from the word, they're doing that. And you really see that rhythm. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we dive into Genesis 29. 
Last week, Shay did a really good job, I thought, recapping Genesis. We've been 15 months into it, and he recapped so that uh, as he got into his very important narrative last week, and if you haven't heard the sermon, be great to go back to it, where God, Yahweh, encounters Jacob for the first time in Jacob's life. He had heard about him from Abraham and from Isaac, his father, but he had never encountered him personally. And this was a pivotal event for Jacob. And Shay recapped that and described all these narratives about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob, and how they all fit under the grand narrative of what God is doing foundationally in Genesis. So one thing we've learned in Genesis is God revealing himself to us. How much we've learned as God revealed and one of the great ways to really look at what he has revealed about himself is through the names that he's given for God in in the book of Genesis. The first name that comes up in the very first chapter is the name God. It's the Hebrew word is El, E-L. And it is essentially the idea of a, a transcendent creator God, greater than us, something beyond that we long for and to know, but that is greater than us. It's beyond our, our horizontal human, it's that vertical God. And that's El. That's a concept that the other peoples around the Israelites that we're going to come to know and around in this region of the world, they had the same concept. And so the, the word El and similar types of variations were in the other languages around them. That was not a unique concept. But God appeared to certain people, Abraham maybe foremost, and revealed himself as a personal God. And he said he had a name and that name was Yahweh. So whenever you see in our Bible, the all capitals, L-O-R-D, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh that Abraham gave to, uh, that God gave to Abraham. And this is a personal God who knows and loves and cares for his people. That was unique, did not exist before. And it was God revealing it. Man did not figure it out. God revealed himself in that way. And the other way he revealed in Genesis 17 to Abraham when he said, I am El Shaddai. So Shaddai is, we say, almighty. So it's God almighty in our Bibles, but that's El Shaddai. And somehow in translation, it loses a lot. But that's the God who not only created, but who sustains and provides and nurtures his creation and his people. So that is, and and he told Abraham, he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant with you. So he's a covenant God who reveals himself. So just as we go through Genesis and as we go in today, remember that that is what God is doing through these narratives is revealing himself in that way. In the previous chapters, we had Jacob, and we, we will pick up with Jacob today, but you remember Jacob deceived Isaac 
and he deceived his, his father, Isaac, and his brother, Esau, and Esau was ticked. So he committed, I'm, you know, I'm going to kill Jacob for this. He's taken my birthright. He's taken my blessing. And he was angry. And so Jacob had stirred up a hornet's nest and his reaction was fear. So at, at the suggestion and encouragement of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob goes on a long journey to get out of Dodge and go to Haran, which is the land. It was Rebekah, his mother's homeland. It was also where Abraham had come from. And he was going to go back there. And last week, we heard about the dream that he had when he was two or three days into that journey, maybe just 50 miles out of a 500-mile journey. He couldn't go back because his brother wanted to kill him and he had fear. He couldn't, he, he was probably reluctant to go forward, not having any idea what he was going to be facing. So here he was and God, Yahweh, appeared to him in a dream and promised him that he would be his God, that he would be with him, that he would give him land, that he would give him a people. And Jacob's a little older at this point. He's not 20. I'm not going to guess how much he is, but he's not 20. He's older. And he said, you're going to have a people. And so Jacob is encouraged now for the first time in a long time, and he has a purpose and a reason for going forward. This promise that he gave was the same promise that God had given to Abraham and Isaac, his father. So overnight, with that dream, literally overnight, Jacob is transformed and he's going forward with boldness. And that's where our uh, story picks up today. If you'll follow along with me in Genesis 29, verse one, it says, Jacob went on his journey. And in Hebrew, the word went on his journey is actually lifted his foot. It's two words. But it says he lifted his foot. And it's really an impactful meaning because it's part of that difference. This is the same wording that is used when Abraham looked up and saw the ram in the thicket and realized he didn't have to sacrifice his own son that God had provided a sacrifice. It said he lifted up his eyes and saw. And it's the same wording in Psalm 121 where it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. So this process of lifting up is an encouragement. It's a beyond and it is a different. It's not just trudging along on a journey. This is where Jacob's going. It says he came to the land of the peoples of the east. Imagine yourself on a journey. This, this territory is fairly rugged today, but if you could imagine back then the with the hills and the rocks and the, it's a very dangerous journey, not a lot of water. You know, you got to know where to go to. He didn't, wouldn't have had food for the journey. So he's got to figure all that out and he doesn't know where he's going. There's no maps. He's got no Google maps or whatever. He's uh, no signs and he's figuring out, probably had stories and directions for how to go, but 500 miles. I mean, that's a Seems like a needle in a haystack, but there he is. And he comes to what he realizes is kind of the land 
And here's what happens in verse two. It says, as he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and they would water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So what's going on here is there is, and it's an important detail, that there is a large stone. And this stone is by design that one person can't move it. It's usually there so that it would take several people so that for accountability, that the village and the the community depended on this water source uh, for their livelihoods. And so the large stone was there. In verse four, Jacob says to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. So he can't, he's there, praise the Lord. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Jacob said, behold, it's still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we, we can't until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. You notice, you can already start to notice a little bit of what's going on here. Jacob is trying to get rid of the shepherds. He's seen Rachel. Maybe he wants some privacy. He's trying to figure out a way to get them out of the picture. In verse nine, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, and he watered the flock of Laban. Jacob is showing off here. He's seen Rachel. He's filled with adrenaline, and he moves the stone all by himself. Here, let's water Laban's flock. And then he turns his attention to the girl, to Rachel, with a lot of emotion. Verse 11 says, then Jacob kissed Rachel. That's his first step. He hadn't even said hello and who he is. He kisses her. And ladies, he's just come 500 miles. They didn't have toothbrushes in those days, but I'm sure he was pretty ripe. And he kisses Rachel. And he wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran, probably because of the news, not because he smelled bad probably because she was excited about the news and she ran to tell her father. So Jacob certainly appears to be smitten with Rachel and he's about to meet Laban for the first time. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Okay, flashback many years before, decades. Again, I'm not going to try to say, but it could be 60, 70, 80 years earlier in a 
similar situation in Haran when Abraham had sent his servant to go get a wife for Isaac. He didn't send Isaac, but he sent a servant to Haran. It was Laban, the brother. It was not Rebekah's father, Bethuel, that took the lead. It was her brother, Laban, who took the lead in dealing with um, the servant and deciding to give uh, Rebekah in marriage to Isaac. But Laban for him, it was not all sentimental because the servant had come bearing very expensive gifts and money and he gave lavishly. So Laban was like, of course, you know, here's Rebecca. The only thing he was sorry to give her up, his preference would have been to have Isaac come and hey, live here with us. But his second option, he'll take the, the money and the gifts. Well, Jacob was not coming bearing gifts. He had empty pockets and he had himself. So um, he's glad to see Jacob. But this thought of marrying his daughters to Isaac's son was probably appealing to him, not for sentimental reasons, but for what he could get out of it. Come here, be part of my family. And this gets to be a common theme. In verse 14, Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him. Jacob stayed with Laban a month. And then Laban said, you're my kinsman. Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages will be. He wants to make a contract. He wants to keep this thing going. Evidently, Jacob was already working and was a productive member of the family, and I imagine he was. He's resourceful, he's strong, he's hardworking, and, uh, and Laban loves having him around. Verse 15, our plot thickens. Now, Laban had two daughters, not just Rachel. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Verse 18 seals the deal for us. It confirms very simply, it says, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said to Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. How many of you committed to serve seven years how many of you men, uh, seven years for a wife? We didn't quite go, go through with that, right? Seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban says, done, deal. It's better that I give her to you than that I give her to any other man. Stay with me. So that suits Laban just fine. There's several things to notice here that when Abraham... Abraham did not send Isaac to Haran. He sent the servant. Do you remember the reason? It was because of Yahweh. It was because the Lord had said, I will give this land that you're in to you and to your generations after you, including Isaac. He did not want Isaac to go back. To him, that was disobedience. And Jacob is not necessarily yet bearing with that, that weight yet. 
So Laban and his daughters also, um, and this is in an interesting side that Laban and his daughters, they knew of the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, and they very well may have had that thought of our sons marrying your daughters. And likely it would be, in fact, in, in Tal, the Talmud is a Jewish uh, literature outside of the Torah. And there are stories about Esau being for Leah and Jacob being for Rachel. So there may have been all of that already baked in. And when Jacob gets here and they find out, number one, Jacob's here, but Esau is back there and he's already got three wives, two Canaanites, and then he married an Ishmaelite, a, a daughter of Ishmael. Um, and so he was not appealing and available to them. So the situation probably was changing dramatically as Jacob arrives. So Laban says, stay with me. In verse 20, it says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. That's a miracle. Seven years serving next to the beautiful girl you love, and you have to wait that long. I, have, I can believe the flood and parting the Red Sea a whole lot easier than I can this seven-year wait. But he did so, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit was in it. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But it doesn't sound like there's a wet, what we would consider a wedding. It's just a party and a feast, and then the couple comes together. So it says, Laban gathered together all the people for a feast, and, but in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Maybe he had had a lot to drink is the only thing. I'm wondering how that switch happened, but it did. And then it makes the parenthetical comment that Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And Zilpah becomes a, a major part of things that happen in the future. So Jacob's response, in the morning he wakes up and it just, all it says is, and behold, it was Leah. Surprise. And Jacob runs to Laban and he says to him, what is this thing you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob is complaining about being deceived. Jacob is a deceiver. The deceiver is deceived and the perpetrator is now the victim. There's an aspect of it that we kind of feel good about, don't we? Well, in verse 26, Laban gives him a, an explanation. He says, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the former. But I'm sorry, but give the younger before the firstborn. Now, a couple of things about this. First, this, this again has to be a, a sock right in the, between the eyes for Jacob because that's what he did. He usurped and he took 
uh, what was rightfully the firstborn, and he took for himself. So there was certainly that. But don't you think he also said, couldn't you have told me that seven years ago? And that would have been a fair question. But Laban didn't do that. And, and then he continues in verse 27, Laban says, complete, he's got a great idea and a solution. Complete the week of this one and we'll give you the other also in return for another seven years. This may have been what Laban was about all along. Again, keeping Jacob and Leah and Rachel all together in one place under his dominion. Now, oftentimes Laban is cast as selfish and deceitful. And, you know, you could say that. This was deceitful. But so when you look back on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were as well. It follows through on this culture and this bloodline pretty strongly. So I can say Laban is that way. And anybody who has a name that rhymes with Saban, I got a problem with, you know. So starts out with an obstacle against him. But he had been a leader for many decades in his family, in his mind, this deceit was actually serving the good and the needs of his family. So that's the way that someone who's not serving Yahweh might think. Verse 28, and finishing our packet, uh, passage, it says, Jacob did so and completed the week of Leah. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife, and Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So this amazing story ends at this point, and it sets the stage for so much of the history that's going to unfold as the nation of Israel with the sons of David, the children of Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah. They get into the act as well, and they form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, their children. So, We'll be looking at to that in the future, but what do we learn as we look deeper under the surface? What are some of the observations? The narrative is important to take this and to pass it on to Brady next week as he picks up with chapter 31. Well, one observation that I would make, which was very interesting to me, I would not noticed before, but there is a missing character in this passage, somebody that's very important it's Yahweh. Nowhere in this passage do we see El or Yahweh or El Shaddai. Jacob, in the very preceding verse to 29.1, the last verses of chapter 28, he encountered God. He was at a spiritual high. He was saying, you will be my God if you will do this for me first time in his life and he's given these promises and he lifts up his 
foot and he goes to Iran and God, God is gracious, leads him to where he's to go. He kept him watered and fed and clothed and he gets there and what happens? How much of his choosing Rachel was relying on himself and not listening to God? I'll contrast what Jacob did with what Abraham's servant did. If you go back to chapter 24, <clears throat> Abraham's servant got to the well in Haran, just like Jacob did. What did he do? He got down on his knees. He watered his camel. You gotta do that first. He got down on his knees and he prayed to Yahweh. Oh, Lord Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He asked the Lord to show him the woman that he had for Isaac. Jacob did not do that. Instead, it appears to us as we read through this narrative that Jacob depended on his eyes and his emotion, his heart. Our hearts can be wicked and deceitful and lead us in wrong direction. Don't trust. It's important to listen to your heart, but not to fully trust it. He didn't call on Yahweh. How often do we do something similar? This is where, for application, we have to see ourselves in Jacob. We have to see ourselves at how often might we come to worship today and have a mountaintop experience, worshiping and praying and hearing the word of God together. And then we go through the week with not much thought of the Lord, depending on our own eyes and our own decisions and our own flesh without seeking him. How often do we receive a great blessing and we end up with self-satisfaction rather than abandon and worshiping the Lord and gratitude toward him. Not seeking the Lord's will in our lives leads to a lot of complication and turmoil, and sometimes pain. So let this not be our story, but let us be a people who do what Jesus told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. A second observation that I'd like to make, and this was the first time that it really hit me this strongly, but it was a perspective about Leah. We usually skim over Leah. Leah is the one we say who is probably not attractive. Scripture says she has weak eyes. And she was unloved. And Jacob is the one that, and she was also the deceit, right? She was the one that showed up as the wife in place of who Jacob wanted to marry. So, we really don't really think of her usually in a positive way from this story, but let's think about this a little more deeply. The scripture here says, the translation says weak eyes. What is the Hebrew word? It's a word rock, R-A-K. And sometimes I love, translators have a hard job and this is one where I think starting in the Revised Standard Version, I think they just missed it. But they translate this weak, and every other, it's used 16 times in the Old Testament. 
every other time it has the connotation of being gentle. It's translated gentle, soft, tender. And a few times inexperienced. But never in a negative, weak way and never is it about physical appearance. So this got me to thinking about weak eyes that maybe what's going on here is the scripture is speaking more to Leah's character rather than a physical attribute. I think we get drawn away because it's paired with she has weak eyes and Jacob and, and Rachel is beautiful of form and appearance. And so we think, oh, well, that must be appearance. But I think it's their attributes. And I think maybe Rachel depended, maybe her beauty and her physical outward appearance was maybe her highest attribute whereas Leah had deeper, just a thought about that. Let's look at some other things about Leah. In the very next verse after this passage, in verse 31, remember, we hadn't mentioned uh, God has not been in here at all, or Yahweh. Well, he comes back in in verse 31, and Brady's gonna preach about that next week. But... In the next five verses, there are five mentions of Yahweh. Four of them are Leah. Leah is proclaiming Yahweh, her God. Rachel does not do that. There's no evidence in her life. It was Leah that took her husband's faith and made it her own. And she, more than Jacob, even in these stories, she is proclaiming Yahweh, So what a, great, what a great thing to think about. And then we focus a lot on unloved Leah, but there's a cave in the cave called Machpelah, which Abraham purchased. And the reason why he purchased it was because his beloved Sarah had died and he wanted a place. And so it was a big place. I think it's known the literal is double cave is what Machpelah means. So he buys this big cave for Sarah and it's the choicest place. And that's where he put her. And that's where Abraham was buried himself. And it's where Isaac and Rebekah were both buried. And it's where Jacob and Leah were both buried. Rachel died in childbirth with Benjamin and she was someplace else. So there's something that tells me that somewhere along the line, she who was unloved became loved and respected by Jacob as he matured and maybe saw more of her character and life. So here's to Leah, a godly woman who loved God and I believe was chosen of God for this purpose. And you know what? Her fourth son was Judah, who was the direct ancestor in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. So she, along with Ruth and Rahab and several other very notable and wonderful women, were in the line of the Savior. So here's more to Leah than I think we've appreciated and seen before. Lastly, what do we learn about God? And the only thing I'm gonna say is his faithfulness. 
though he's not there in word, he is there. He's there in action. He's there in his grace, in his provision, in his leading and providing. And that's the way he is in our lives. Even when we are not faithful, even when we may fail him, yet he is there and he is a faithful God to us. And there we sing, we're singing songs this morning that point to that. Faithful to the end, our Redeemer. And I'd like to close with just three, three verses to leave on that really take on this theme. I love Lamentations 3, 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We have a hymn that, uh, that is drawn from that. And the second verse it would be a strange one to use in July, that we usually use it in December uh, at Christmas time, but Isaiah 9, 6. But what better to take a passage that's pointing to the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis to one day send a savior, a deliverer. That was Jesus our Lord. And Isaiah 9 tells us, to us a son is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, not just absence of war, but peace meaning uh, shalom, wholeness and health of that peace that we have with him, there will be no end. What a great promise. And then lastly, that we can certainly share in with the apostle Paul that he wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter nine, he said, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I, Paul, and hopefully us as well, let's boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and are grateful for your promises and for your faithfulness in fulfilling those promises. You are good and you are true and we can count on you, Lord. Sustain us by your word and by your spirit. Draw us to you, Father, that even when we stray, Lord, we may run to you. We give you the remainder of our day and our worship, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.